Join me in Ecclesiastes this morning. We're going to look at a section this morning that I've entitled Dead End Streets Part 1. Have you ever been down a dead end street? I have. Many. In fact, my family jokes all the time. I am the most uh, navigationally challenged driver that they've ever met. So if I'm ever, ever in a new city, I typically find all the wrong ways to get where I'm trying to go, like all of them. And I typically find all the dead end streets. That's, that's just how I roll. I don't know. That's how I'm wired. I'm built. God made me that way. I can't help it. Um, so just remember that if we ever go anywhere, you go with me, just jump in the driver's seat and let me sit in the passenger side. We'll get there a lot quicker. That's just the way it's going to happen. But I mean, even to this day, you know, those children mazes, like where the kids will do a maze and they've got to kind of draw around and get to the end. You know, they've got a starting point and end. Those still, that still gives me anxiety. Like I can't even, I can't even do that with my six-year-old son. He showed me one the other day and said, hey, can you help me with that? And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> You're on your own, dude. I can't, I, that's not me. So dead-end streets for me are, are a very real thing. And, and Solomon is going to walk us through about seven of them. I mentioned those last week. We start um, in chapter 1, verse 12. And that's why I had Sean jump back. We actually covered 12 and 13 last week. But just to read that to give us a ramp up. But remember, what we're looking at in verses 12 through 15 is the dead-end street of philosophy. Uh, the second one we're going to look at today um, is the student um, gaining more knowledge, trying different things. And um, we'll look at that in, in more closely. Third dead end street, the party animal. We'll see that in chapter two. The alcoholic, we'll see that also in chapter two. The workaholic and the aristocrat. And then finally, um, the, the Puritan or somebody, or, or not finally, we've got one more, the philanthropist, okay? And so all of these things were experiments, if you will, laboratory of life experiments by Solomon to figure out the meaning and purpose of life. And what he does is he gets to the end of these roads and he realizes what? He, he's in a cul-de-sac. Like there's, he can't keep going. He's at a dead end street. And so we're going to look at these two this morning. And what I want to do is paint the picture as to why this would be an, an absolute jolt to Solomon's audience. Those, those that are watching Solomon write this, especially what we're going to look at today, it would have been an absolute jolt before, let's just leave Ecclesiastes for a second. Go with me to Proverbs 3. Put your finger in Ecclesiastes because we're coming right back. Proverbs chapter 3. And I want to read verses 13 through 18. Proverbs 3, verses 13 through 18, he says this, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. He's personifying wisdom here. This is valuable stuff. Wisdom's valuable is what he's saying. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. So wisdom's good, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what that says. Now jump with me to Ecclesiastes. And let's read verses 12 through 15. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. 
This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. Go on to verse 16. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. So is wisdom good, or is it worthless? You see how that might jolt a reader? You see how it might just confuse somebody? Like, wait a minute, I thought... I thought wisdom is good, and now you're saying you're pursuing wisdom, and it's still grasping for the wind. Here's the distinction. I won't, I won't keep us in suspense too long. See, Proverbs has the perspective that I'm pursuing wisdom coupled with the fear of God. It's not apart from the fear of God. It's not apart from acknowledging God as I go about seeking to understand, learn how to apply biblical truth from a biblical worldview to where my feet hit the ground. That's Proverbs wisdom. Ecclesiastes, you're going to notice that instead of coupled up with the fear of God, Ecclesiastes is coupled up with just observing life under the sun. Now that's a problem. And what we're going to see is, is because basically it's philosophy. And we said this last week, philosophy only generates more questions about life. It doesn't give you answers. That's the problem with philosophy. Philosophy allows you to observe things, but it gets you more frustrated because the more you see, the more you recognize things aren't fair and they're not working out the way that you think they should, but it doesn't give you anything to solve that conundrum. And so here's what we we deal with as we bump into this section. And so let's jump in 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 verse 14. Uh, But before we do, remember in verse 13, let me just point this out. That Solomon, we're in Ecclesiastes 1.13, Solomon did not take these pursuits half-heartedly. In fact, we get that from verse 13. He says, I set my heart, these two words, to seek and to search out, wis- search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. That means if, if we're talking about a rock, not only did he pick up every stone and look under every stone, but then he took the rock up and turned it around and looked at it from every angle. That's the idea that's given. Not only did he look under things for the root of the matter, he looked at things from every angle. And he's going to give us that that description here in these seven dead-end streets. And so not only that, but then he says this about it. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man. You know, some some people translate burdensome. This this, um, bad business. This is a... In fact, we get the, the word burdensome is the same word. We get the, our root word for evil in the Hebrew. Like this is not a fun task that Solomon is saying. This was burdensome. This was overwhelming to him. But why does God do it? Notice again, we mentioned that last week, that very last phrase in verse 13, by which they may be exercised. God has placed that in the heart of, and mind of man to understand and know meaning and purpose. Why? To drive them to himself. See, the the problem with secularism, the problem with paganism, the problem with having a secular worldview is that they will turn you, they'll say, okay, that didn't work. Okay, let's go down this road. And the problem is, is secularism, philosophy, paganism has only one type of street. It's a dead end street both ways. Any way you come at it, it's going to be a dead end. If you you turn and try to make a left, you're going to run into another dead end. See, the, the only path of life 
is the path that includes God. I mean, that's what the, the final conclusion is going to be. And so as we jump into verse 14 now, he says this, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And we see that due to Solomon's uh, position as king, he had more exposure to, to all these things more than your average person. You know, like I'm not going to be attending any playoff baseball games this year. You know why? Because I don't have a couple thousand dollars to blow on a seat to go buy $10 hot dogs all night either to, to get full, right? I don't have access to that because I don't have the money to do it. You know, I might actually enjoy doing that, especially if, if I've got a friend that gives me free tickets once in a while. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I, I can't go. I can't gain access to that. Solomon didn't have that problem. Solomon wanted something. He got it. Solomon wanted to, to stop doing that and pursue something. He did it. No problem. Nobody was regulating his schedule. Nobody was regulating his resources. So he's in a position here to fully investigate all of these different avenues of life. And he took that very seriously. In fact, he answers his own question from verse 3. Remember, verse 3 kind of gives us the guiding question of the entire book. Let's read it again. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And at the end of his life, Solomon has looked into all these different works, and he's going to make a conclusion. And the profit is this. The leftover is this. If you do everything you do without taking God into consideration, it's worth nothing. If you even do a little bit with taking God into consideration, it's got potential eternal ramifications, eternal benefit, eternal value. And that's where he's trying to get our thinking here. And so now clearly we see, although Solomon says all things, clearly he's not talking about every individual thing that every individual's ever done. He's not talking about that. He's talking about all types of things. What's his conclusion? Well, you ever put your hand outside of a car as you're driving down the freeway and you just grab a little wind right and save it for later and just put it in a box no I mean what happens I mean if your hand wasn't attached to your wrist your hand would be gone right it's going pretty fast the wind just blows right through it It's, it's grasping for the wind as he says Everything's vanity. Everything's transitory. You can't get your arms around it. This is the perspective of just wisdom under the sun. You know, what's really interesting also about this word grasping for the wind, it's the same root that we get our Hebrew word shepherd from. You ever, uh, anybody ever been on a farm and tried to corral animals into a, a pen I remember one time I was, well, I say helping, I was more watching my father-in-law trying to get some, some cows into a, a trailer because he needed to take them somewhere. And I remember just trying to corral cows. Like they don't even move fast. It was like, it was hard. It was hard to get them where we needed them to go. Imagine the, the concept now of trying to corral wind, trying to, trying to corral wind into a sheep pen. You see the impossibility, the, the imagery that he gives there, that this is all like grasping in the wind. This is the end of life with wisdom as your guiding principle without the acknowledgement of God. It's going to be like grasping the wind, shepherding wind into a sheep corral. In other words, there's no type of effort or action that can produce something ultimately permanent and therefore satisfying or lasting in this life. 
So there's no pursuit on earth as studied in depth and from every angle. This is what Solomon's concluding here. That can, that can bring purpose and meaning. Uh, and that is just so important because many people think, well, if I just pursue life via wisdom, then I'll get to the end and I'll figure this thing out and I'll gain meaning and purpose. And he's saying, you know what? That's not even where it's at. Isn't that, isn't that subtle and deceiving of our sin nature to say that should be your ultimate pursuit and then realize when you're 85, nope, I missed it. I missed the boat. I pursued this my whole life. I was wrong. I missed it. And it goes back to that old Sunday school answer, right? The answer is always what? Jesus. That's right. It's not a squirrel, right? You've heard that story, right? It's, you know, you've heard that Sunday school story. It's Jesus. That's the answer. He's the answer. The answer is in a person, not a what, not a which, not a, a this, not a hujimawachia, not the next book you can read. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. You are complete in him. Colossians teaches us. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We need to get to know who we are in Christ and stop chasing after everything the world tells us to chase after. In fact, this is why you don't need every self-help book that ever comes out on the shelf, Christian or non-Christian. Put your self-help books away. All you need is Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand that we're complete in him. In fact, you know, when you look at that passage in Colossians, really interesting. It says that Jesus Christ, that in him dwelled the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then the next verse says, and in him you, are, you have been made full. The treasure chest of heaven has been dumped on your head. You have it all. Why are we looking out yonder for something that we don't even need, that greatly exceeds everything we have, greatly exceeds anything the world or somebody else can offer. It's all yours. We just need to grow in our understanding of that, and we need to be encouraged to start relying upon what we have in Jesus Christ. And so he's telling us this in not, uh, not too uncertain terms. And, and, you know, one of the things that we see in this section is he kind of lays out the problem and then he closes this section with a proverb. And so in verse 15, we're going to have a proverb now that summarizes exactly what we just looked at. One of the things that you'll find is if you, are, if you have a philosophical mind, if you pride yourself in understanding philosophy and being intellectual and debating things, that's fine. We're not telling you to turn your brain off when you come in the door, question things, think about things, consider things intellectually. That's fine. But understand this, that when you do that, apart from the Lord, philosophy only leads two places, pessimism and depression. Because philosophy doesn't have the answers. Philosophy will only generate more frustration and more questions. And that's what we see here. Because one of the things that philosophy, again, does, you can observe things, but you can't fix them. <laughs> How fun is that? That's like watching the news, right? All you do is observe how horrible things are, but you can't fix it. You, you just watch. And that's why how many people in this room have said, you know what? I'm just not watching the news today or tomorrow or for a couple of days because I just can't handle anymore. Why is, why is that feeling? It's a hopelessness. It's a feeling like you can't fix it. That's what philosophy produces. That's what that approach to life produces. And that's why in verse 15, he gives this proverb. 
Verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. And um, you see this tree here is a great example of that. Um, because, because this is in the, what, what's called the pu'al stem in the Hebrew, it, the phrase is describing action that's passive. Okay, so it's a passive action. In other words, what has been made crooked, or better yet, what's been twisted. Okay, so go back. What, what has been made crooked, what has been twisted, cannot be straight. Now, ultimately, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about a sin-cursed world that's just straight-up crooked and twisted from the get-go. Just straight-up crooked and twisted from the get-go. But it's like an older tree that's got crooked offsets in its trunks and maybe due to high wind when it was a young tree or maybe due to lack of rain or sunshine, it was, it was forced to, to kind of bend in a certain way just to survive. You know, one of the funny things about, I mean, if, you, if you've lived in Georgia all your, night, all your life, you're not going to understand this comment at all. So I'm going to try to explain it for you. Um, in Texas, when you buy a new home, um, you get two trees planted in your front yard and you get two trees planted in your backyard. That's all your trees. I am dead serious. And I, and I remember one, one of my trees in one of our yards out front, we had a, a big ice storm and windstorm, and that tree literally bent over. I mean, part of its roots were out. It was facing probably like a 30-degree angle with the ground. And, and you'll see this a lot in Texas. You, you, take, a, you take a tree, and you, you stretch it back up, and you put stakes on the ground, and you've got it wrapped, so you stretch that trunk up straight. Well, I'm not, in addition to not driving very well with directions, I'm not a, I'm not a green thumb guy. I really stink with plants and trees and I just, I can't keep anything alive. So I pull that tree back because that's what I was told to do. You got to get that thing straight. It'll kind of readjust and start growing straight. Um, you know, we, we sold that house in uh, 2011. We went, we go by there every year because it's kind of by care. Anyways, we like to just drive by and reminisce and that tree is still in the yard and it's still crooked. I still, I couldn't fix that thing. That thing was like beyond fixing. And yet this is kind of what the description, what, what's crooked cannot be made straight. And he says, what's lacking cannot be numbered. And this word lacking means some sort of deficiency. You, you're missing something. And you know, many times in life, that's exactly um, the problem with people who think that if they just get enough wisdom, enough knowledge that, that I can start putting this thing together, I can figure life out. And the problem that Solomon says is, hey, if it's lacking, if you don't have all the pieces, you're not going to make sense of it. And by the way, because you're a finite mortal, you don't have all the pieces, by the way. You don't have it. So you're not going to be able to figure this thing out. You know, this is why um, it kind of reminds me of like doing a puzzle. This is why you don't buy used puzzles at the thrift store. Because you can, you can buy the box, you can shake it, you can look at it, you say, yep, that looks like a thousand pieces. The problem is 995 also looks like a thousand pieces when you're looking at it all at once. And there's nothing more frustrating in life than to get your puzzle put together and be missing five pieces and then do nothing about it. You, can, you can't do anything about it. They're They're gone. You can't cut them. And you see, this is what he's saying. What's lacking can't be numbered. If it's not there, you don't have all the pieces to put this together. And by the way, guys, we don't have all the pieces to put together. 
And we, we've got to be okay with that tension. And one of the ways that we get okay with that tension is to recognize that you don't, you don't control your life. God controls your life. Everything that you live and breathe and do, God's hand is in. So why not be occupied with what he's occupied with? And then we just, we align our purposes with that. Instead of going the exact opposite way, saying, well, no, no. God said I have to go this way, but I think I can find another path. I think I can find a, another way. And that's fine. If you want to do U-turns your entire life because you're hitting dead-end street after dead-end street, God gives you the freedom to do that. He doesn't want you to do that. He's got a better plan for you. He wants to get you out on the spiritual autobahn that you can go 100 miles an hour and crank in fellowship with him. That's okay. You can wander around the Chicago of your spiritual life like I did many times doing U-turns trying to figure out where I was going. You can come to, you know, New York City. I've never seen an intersection with like eight different directions of roads coming off of one intersection. And no stop sign. Like you, on a dime, you have to decide where you're going. And for many of us, that's how we live our spiritual life. We just bump into one road after another, heading down to one dead end after another, flipping around one time after another. And so we don't want to do this, obviously. And so the problem with Solomon's search in this investigation, although it was thorough, there was nothing to be found that would provide the answers that he was looking for. That's the problem. He needed to realize that at the outset. And so this problem that he's investigating calls for a solution outside of himself, and that solution is going to be God. This is what's going to make sense of life. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to make sense of every aspect, individual detail of life, because many times we're still confused by why God allows something. But at the same time, we can rest in the one who knows the future, the one who holds the future, and that's really the encouragement. And so we move to the second dead-end street that we want to look at today, and that is this, this dead-end street of, of knowledge, gaining knowledge and or having fun times. You know, good time Charlie, you know, kind of guy. I'm going to work on getting knowledge, but I'm also going to have a blast. I'm going I'm to really just pursue this, this fun times. And so what he says in verse 16, he says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, one of the things we learn about Solomon is, is he had attained greatness. This was not bragging. He really was great. In fact, he had a, an exalted state of, of honor and human glory from a human perspective. In fact, we learn from the scriptures that he was the richest man in the world and that leaders of other countries around the globe came to just listen to him. We get a, one account of that in 1 Kings with the Queen of Sheba coming to just listen and sit at his feet and talk to him. And so he had this this greatness. Now, one of the reasons um, that I believe he brings this up here is he's kind of giving his resume again, okay? Because he's going to give a conclusion on life. He wants you to know that you can trust him, that he's not just some, you know, it'd be like if a, you know, I know this isn't to pick on homeless people, but, you know, if you were to go down to Atlanta and a homeless person said, hey, I've got the key. I know how I can make you, I know how to make people rich. I'd be like, ah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I'd have to, but if a guy pulled up in a Mercedes, three-piece suit, looked like a million bucks, he says, hey, I got the key to make you rich, I might, I might take out a pen and <laughs> at least listen to the guy, have an enjoyable conversation, right? So he's giving his resume 
so that, so that you and I would, would trust his conclusions. We wouldn't say, ah, I'm not sure about what Solomon is saying. Let me go try it out on my own and then realize what he realized when you're 80, 85. He wants you to believe him now. So he's giving us his resume. He had attained this level of greatness. In fact, notice what else he says. Very fascinating the way he words that. Let's go back um, to verse 16. He says, I commune with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness. And then notice that next phrase, and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Very fascinating word because the word gain means he added to. Okay, he, he added to, he increased it. Um, and why is that so fascinating? Because we learn from the Bible that not only did Solomon receive the gift of wisdom for God, but then he took that gift and he continued to develop it. He continued to, to grow it. You know, some people might say, well, I got wisdom from God, man. That's enough. I, don't, I, can, I can worry about other things. Solomon didn't do that. He got wisdom from God, and he kept building it. He kept growing it. That's what this says. And so he's, he's giving us uh, his resume, in a sense, to convince you that he's really thoroughly tested this stuff and that he's done it from, from such a perspective that nobody could even match his ability to skillfully take knowledge and apply it to situations. And he did that in his investigation. So the idea communicated here is, is that he continued to pursue wisdom and add even more than what he possessed to the extent that he surpassed everyone. And that would also include his own father, David, who, who was pretty wise. I mean, he did some, some dumb things, but, but wise people do dumb things once in a while. You know, they're still, they're still got a sin nature. And then notice, notice what he says here. He says, my heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And notice that he, he goes to the heart here. It, in other words, it's not just head knowledge that we might think just kind of on a surface level. He's got this deep in his inner core that he, he understands um, great wisdom and knowledge. And, and we're going to notice that when, when Solomon talks about wisdom, he's not frustrated by the presence uh, of, of, or the lack of wisdom, He's frustrated by the very presence of wisdom because it can't provide the answers that he's looking for. You see that the difference? He's got so much wisdom. He's not frustrated by a lack of wisdom. He's frustrated by the wisdom he, can, he possesses, which is higher than anybody else, and he can't do anything with it. That's, that's of meaning and of substance without God. And this is where the frustration comes, comes in for him. His heart, he says, has literally seen or perceived great wisdom in knowledge. Again, notice that it's his core inner being that he's talking about here. And what he does is he personifies his heart as a witness to the type of wisdom and knowledge he's exhibited and gained during his life. He's, his heart is, is giving testimony that this is true. Now, one of the things that we learn um, about uh, one's heart, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, is really kind of an interesting point because the heart in, in Hebrew, com- it points to the combined use of the mind and the will in quest for knowledge. You know, there was, um, Hebrew has no specific words for mind or brain, believe it or not. I mean, it's got over, I think, 5,000 words in the language, but no words specifically for mind or brain. And so many times when the Hebrew writers would use this word heart, they're describing your thinking apparatus as well, not just your, your feely <laughs> your feeling apparatus, but your thinking apparatus. How are you thinking? How are you considering it? So when he says, uh, you know, my heart is understood, he's talking about his mind. He, he understood this intellectually at a deep core 
level. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, he says, And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. And so he says, in fact, he uses the same word he used back in verse 13. Maybe we talked about that. I set my heart to seek and search out my wisdom. But, but he uses the same word here. And the idea is that he places this object, his mind, his heart, in possession or control of another. And in this case, he does that with three different things we're going to look at. But what it just shows us is this. Solomon wasn't just dabbling in this endeavor. He was completely desperate trying to figure this out. It wasn't just something that he was just touching on. He was really digging deep to try to figure this thing out. And so the first thing that he set his heart to know was wisdom, okay? Just like we read in Proverbs. Wisdom has got value when it's joined up to the fear of God or recognition or acknowledgement of God. And so he placed uh, this great value on learning and realizing wisdom in his life. We see that he built that. Um, to set his heart on it implies simply this. Everything he pursued in life, he pursued it with this in mind um, to gain more of. So it's not just something that he tried for six months, like, like maybe a diet or a workout plan. We kind of we try for a little bit and then we kind of fade off. This is something that he set his heart on, that he devoted his life to. And see, pursuing wisdom like this makes sense because this is exactly what all the wise men all the philosophers, all the leaders of the day would encourage. In fact, I would venture to say that we would encourage our young people, our old people, our middle-aged people to pursue wisdom. How many times do we even talk in, in prayer circles about, I need God's wisdom, would you pray for me? I need God's wisdom on this job selection. I need God's wisdom on dealing with my, my kids. I need God's wisdom in dealing with this in-law situation, whatever it is, Right? We, we're always asking for wisdom. So it's not that wisdom uh, is bad. But here's where it goes a little haywire. When people put too much value on wisdom independently of God, that's the key. See, there's so many good things that can turn into distracting things when they're not tied with God. They're not tied together with the Lord. So you don't have a biblical perspective. You start trusting in things like wisdom to give you the meaning of life instead of trusting in God to give you the meaning of life. This is why when we talk about the Christian life, we talk about sanctification, we talk about growing in the Lord, you know, you can actually believe that if you wake up early and read your Bible for an hour, that you're spiritual. That has nothing to do with spirituality. Now, am I saying don't read your Bible? Of course, I'm not saying that. I, that would give me not very good job security, right? <laughs> so, I mean, even on a personal level, I want you to value your Bible, what I'm saying is this, that you are spiritual when you are trusting in the Lord. That's when you're spiritual. And you know, I can read my Bible and not be trusting the Lord. I can read my Bible and cross off my daily reading for the day. I can read my Bible and not remember one word that it says and go on about my life. That hour, that 30 minutes, that two hours, that doesn't make you spiritual. What are you doing the 24, 23 other hours of the day? Are you leaning on your own understanding? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you walking by faith in the word of God? Are you trusting in God's ability to deliver you from sin's power? Are you trying to deliver yourself from sin's power? Yeah, I got to struggle with anger. I'm just going to learn how to count to 10. Well, good luck because tomorrow you're going to have to count to 11 to pull that off. And then 12 and then 13 and so on. Because you don't overcome anger by human reliance strategies. 
It's never going to work. You'll find yourself living the failure of a Christian life that Paul records in Romans chapter 7. He doesn't want anybody living that life. You've got more in Christ than you will ever realize. God wants you to take advantage of that. God wants you to enjoy the benefits of that. And you only do that as you walk by faith. So you can see how, how people might pursue something good as wisdom, but then it becomes distracting. People come to Bible study and fill their notebooks, but then they don't trust the Lord throughout the week. And, you know, they might as well just save a tree. Like, don't, don't even write anything down. Just start to learn to trust the Lord and just start to learn to rely upon your God. That's what we're talking about. And yet here, um, many people would say, I think in Solomon's day, I think he would say it in our day, wisdom's a good thing and it is a good thing, but it's got to be tied and connected to the Lord. Otherwise, it's a pointless endeavor. It's, it's waving my hand in the air of a 60-mile-an-hour car, car trying to grab the wind and corral it into a stable. It's not going to work. It's not going to give you sense or meaning of life. Now, Solomon is going down a dead-end trail, and he, he absolutely veers off on a, on a rocky trail here. I don't even know the, the train of thought. I mean, I kind of understand it here. But, but Solomon, I get you, man. Setting your heart on wisdom, good idea, okay? And I can even understand, like, it, you're, you're, you want to do that. You think that's going to get you the right way. Here's what Solomon also did. Remember how I told you late, earlier he, he was the kind of guy that in his investigation, he'd lift up a stone, he'd look at it from all different angles. He's about to take a U-turn on this wisdom thing. Crazy. He says, I set my heart to know Madness. Now, this is what madness means. It means an extreme lack of understanding and wisdom. So the very opposite of what he's been pursuing in wisdom, now he's going to try the other direction. I mean, complete 180 degrees, he's going to go the other direction. In fact, this word was used of people who had erratic behavior that mimicked madness. You know, uh, David had an example in his life, remember, where he, he feigned madness and he let spit, like, run down his beard. That's gross. I mean, this is what we're talking about here. He's, he's going the exact opposite direction. So not only did he set his heart to know and understand the opposite of wisdom, but he actively pursued the opposite direction. And anybody that knows the history of Solomon's life knows what? He did this. This is, this is the guy. I mean, he did this. You can see it. In his life, now we kind of got, we're, we're kind of getting behind the scenes. We're getting into his thinking. Why did he do some of the things he did? Here you go. He was, he was pursuing it. He was investigating this angle. And um, I think the reason he was doing is, is this way as bad as people say? I have to investigate it. I've got the ability to investigate it. So I'm going to go investigate it. And we're going to see that kind of play out. Here, but you know, one of the things that um, you know, I the seven dead end streets. I'd borrowed that from a commentator, but one of the the things he labeled this section is the student. I find that really interesting because what what is the typical um, comment when kids go off to college, right? Well, they're learning, and what else are they doing? P- pursuing madness all at the same time, right? And that's why many kids cram in a four year degree in you know six or seven years because they're They've been distracted by the madness and the folly of this stage of their life. They're gaining lots of knowledge, but they're also pursuing lots of madness at the same time. Well, Solomon did this. 
That's why if you're getting ready to go off to college, you can just listen to Solomon and not make the same dumb mistakes that many people do. There's, there's wisdom here if we can just grasp it. Now, what's really interesting about this next phrase is whereas madness was an active pursuit, now he's going to talk about setting his heart to know folly. Folly is not an active pursuit. Folly is going along with the flow. It's just letting it happen, just kind of staying with the current, which that would be disastrous for this guy in the picture for sure. But he said, I set my heart to know folly. Means that's what, that which lacks prudence and wisdom, revealing a lack of understanding. So in contrast to madness, it, it seems to communicate a less active pursuit. And it seems to reflect more of a going along with whatever comes. So it's more reactive than proactive. And many times uh, people will just go about life that way, just bumping one, from one thing to the next. Okay, well, I guess my boat's taking me over here now. My boat's taking me over here now. You'll see the, almost the, the mindset of somebody who's pursuing this, just bumping from one thing to the next. You know, one day they want to be a culinary specialist, and they've identified this special school in Florida. And the next, next week, they're, they're on an oil rig. And you're like, ah, what? How did that happen? You know, and it's just this bumping back and forth through life, just going with wherever the current takes you. And see, Solomon said, I'm going to set my heart on that. I'm going, to, I'm going to check out that avenue and see if that gets me anywhere. We see his conclusion, verse 17, I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. In fact, it seems like what he's saying, and this is where this, this hopelessness comes into the book of Ecclesiastes, where people say, man, Solomon was depressed. Oh, and I've told you, like, even in the study of my book, like, sometimes I just got to, like, go find a room with a window, get some light. Because it's, like, overwhelming sometimes. And what he's saying is both pursuits, wisdom and folly, lead to the same place, grasping for the wind. And so what does that make you naturally say? Well, then who cares? Who cares about life? Why, why are we even here? This thing has no meaning. This thing has no purpose. I can spend all my time going this way. I can spend all my time going that way. It doesn't even matter. You can see why this book many times is often viewed as fatalistic or nihilistic, where there's no meaning of life without God. And so uh, you can see how this all comes into play. Now, he's going to expand on this more in chapter 2. It gets even more depressing. I mean, that's what's crazy. It gets more depressing because then he's going to realize, like, if I live my life as a wise man or I live my life as a fool, guess what? I still end up in the same place, six feet, six feet down, six feet under, so who cares? And so you can kind of see him again. Why is he doing this? He's not trying to discourage you and say, yeah, just uh, go ahead. You don't have to live anymore. What he's trying to do is disillusion you so that when you see this, you're going to recognize you need God. You need God. That's what he's trying to do. And I think he's doing a good job of this. So in other words, when you value or pursue wisdom or folly, those two things cannot produce something that's ultimately permanent or satisfying in life. Everything he says is transitory, not able to be held onto. He can't get his arms around it. He can't corral it into a sheep pen. He can't make sense of all these things. He just realizes that both of those paths are dead-end streets, both of them. Those are two opposites, but they're both dead-end streets. So wisdom in this respect, we've said this, is human wisdom without the fear of God. And what he's saying, it's no better than madness or folly. Isn't that something? In fact, 
When you look at the lives of famous philosophers in the history of the world, what do you see? You see at some point they turn to madness and folly. You could almost go down the book and see the lives that these guys live because as they are learning more about the way things work under the sun and they're gaining wisdom on how practically things fit together, they get more and more discouraged and hopeless with life and they eventually say, you know what, let me try this. Let me try that. Let me try this. Let me try that. And if someone would have slid them a book of Ecclesiastes, they could have actually prevented a lot of that. But that's the, the avenue that most people respond to. Again, even wisdom, noble thing, good thing, by itself, it's an empty pursuit. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to a meaningless life, even the pursuit of wisdom without God. Wisdom may recognize connections in life, but it cannot f- explain or fix life's al- anomalies. And um, as I said in the last Dead End Street, there's a proverb to summarize this. Well, we have the proverb to summarize what we've just been looking at, verse 18. And what we see in this proverb is simply this. Verse 18 says, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Try putting that verse next to one of the verses in Proverbs and explaining that. How does that, those two fit together? Well, they fit together simply. Proverbs is taking into account with pursuit of wisdom with the fear of God, con- con- connected with that. Ecclesiastes, again, pursuit of wisdom without this connection to the fear of God. You know, this, this word grief means a feeling of anxiety and sadness in a distressing situation. <laughs> and notice, the more wisdom you gain, the more grief you have. You see how those are are tied together. It's a, there's a German proverb that says, much wisdom causeth a headache. And that's, I think that summarizes it well. Much wisdom causes uh, a headache. And so although godly wisdom is to, to be desired and pursued, the wisdom that the world provides, this, this wisdom without thought of God, causes anxiety. It actually makes it worse because you can't explain purpose or meaning. But when one understands how to skillfully live life and it does not solve all the problems, it's devastating. This is, this is where many people get. They've pursued wisdom in life and then they realize they get there and it doesn't solve their problems. That is a devastating realization that many people don't make until they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s on their deathbed. And then realize, ah, I wish I had it all to do over Again, and I would take into account God. I would take into account God's purpose. I would take into account what God wants to do in and through me as a believer in Jesus Christ. And I would have given up my 401k and I would have given up my four boats and I would have given up my vacation home wherever. And I would have just lived my life presented to him by faith. What do you want, Lord? I'm in. What's your will, God? I'm in. Where do you want to send me, God? Africa? I'm in, right? Whatever it is, I'm in. I'm in, Lord. What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? I am in. I can watch the Dallas Cowboys later, right? I can watch this game later. I can do this hobby later. I can do that later. Lord, what do you want? I'm in. That's the mindset that we see here because when when you and I pursue the types of things that we pursue 
It may not be this dead-end street. It may not be the next one that we cover. But there are so many dead-end streets, it will make your head spin. Satan is the master deceiver. He wants to take your life, make it worth nothing for Jesus Christ. And he'll do that not in sinful ways all the time, but in neutral ways. You know, you've ever heard the word neutralize? It's exactly what Satan does. He just neutralizes believers right and left. And, And quite frankly, it doesn't take much to do that. It does not take much to neutralize each one of us because the, the, the natural gravitation is going to be to pick up one of these dead-end streets instead of saying, you know what, God, what do you want? I'm in. I'm in. I'm presented. My body is here. And if you've got a body here this morning, and, and as best I can tell, everyone does, God wants you to present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable He's not asking for more than what's reasonable. That's your reasonable act of worship, right? We talk about that here, but it comes to play here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Knowing more can make you miserable when things do not add up the way they should. And that kind of takes us to the next uh, sentence in the proverb. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And both of these word uh, increases are what's in the Hebrew called the hifel stem. means they're causative. In other words... Gaining knowledge causes the increase of sorrow. (laughs) That's crazy. They're connected. And, you know, anybody that's an expert in any field knows what I'm talking about. You know, I can come in this church and I can enjoy a lot of music. I, I can just enjoy it. But, you know, there are certain people in this church that are musically trained that when they hear the, the notes that I don't hear, like, ooh, man, they hit... He hit the wrong note there. Ooh, that harmony was off. And I'm over here going, man, that harmony. Wow, I feel like I'm in heaven, you know? Because I'm not classically trained. But the increase of knowledge sometimes causes you not to enjoy something as much. I, I can't even hardly watch, you know, having played baseball at a, at a fairly high level, I can't even hardly watch a baseball game without thinking about all the nuances that are going on in the game. And like, I'll be watching it with my, my wife and she'll say, man, that was a great hit. And I'm like, well, actually it wasn't. And let me tell you why. And, and, I, and part of me wishes I could just enjoy the game in a simple way, but, but I can't anymore, right? I've been ruined with all of this nuanced knowledge and, and it increases sorrow in some sense. And that's the case, I think, for Solomon in these investigations and Again, knowledge here means a knowledge with a focus on moral qualities and its application. Sorrow means physical pain of the body or an emotional uh, type of pain. And this is exactly what knowledge does. Now, sometimes knowledge of the way, and this is, this is what I think we can relate to. When we have a knowledge of the way, the way things should be, it can cause you to be miserable and experience pain when things aren't that way. And I think that's what Solomon is describing here as he's pursued um, these things. Now, as a positive note to end, this should not discourage anybody from pursuing wisdom or knowledge or a greater understanding of the Lord or of his word, but it should cause you to desire to find the Lord in the word, right? And the Lord in your life. And the Lord in your consideration. Everybody in this room is probably facing a decision of some sort right now. And if you're not, just wait a week and this will make sense because you'll be facing it then, right? And the point is this. 
Will you consider the Lord when you're making that decision? Will will you take him into account as you try to skillfully apply knowledge to your life? That's wisdom. See, the problem with secular wisdom, it goes like this. It's like, oh, well, I've got this one job. This job over here pays me five more dollars an hour. Easy decision. Not necessarily. Why why is making five more dollars an hour going to motivate you to move your life. That is not a, a cut and blank decision, especially when you don't take the Lord into consideration there. Now, if you've been praying for three months, Lord, we can't make ends meet. I can't pay my bills. I really just need you to bring something that pays a little bit more, like $3 more an hour, $4, something like that. And then God delivers something with $5 an hour. Hey, I'm in. That's a no brainer, right? Because I've been considering the Lord the whole time. But these are the kind of things that we're talking about as we live out our life. And so next week, we want to just continue to work our way. We'll be in chapter two. Just continue to work our way um, up and down some of these dead end streets. So let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do um, thank you for your word. Lord, it is our heart's desire to, to take our lives um, and, and simply present our bodies to you. Lord, that's, that's what we want. We want to we want to bask in, in our understanding of the riches that we possess in Jesus Christ. We want to every day realize the, the great work that he accomplished on our behalf, not only in, in paying the penalty uh, for our sins so that we can spend eternity with you, but also um, dying to sin and taking us into that death so that we might be free from sin's power, that we might actually on this earth live an abundant life, the life that you speak of in your word. It's great, Lord, that we have eternal life based on the finished work of your son. But, Lord, we want to begin to enjoy on a daily and more consistent basis the abundant life that you have planned for us. And we know there's so many things attempting to distract our minds and our hearts from you. And, Lord, we just pray that we would be um, uh, servants who would understand our need for you and just more cognizant of what it means to rely upon you and to set our mind on things above on a daily basis. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.